This week on Just Solutions, marginalised communities have been fighting for decades to have their stories told accurately and fairly by the media. While digital and social media platforms can offer opportunities for communities to take control of the narrative, they're also spaces of misinformation and big tech control. Groups like Media Justice are fighting for communities to have access to media to tell their own stories with the understanding that media narratives can shape public policy. They're campaigning for open and affordable internet, and they're raising awareness of the surveillance of black activists on social media. Our guest today is Ateng Etta, the Narrative Director at Media Justice. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. Ateng, it's so great to have you with us. Thank you very much for being our guest today on Just Solutions. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, we touched on it a little bit in the introduction about the need to have communities that have historically been marginalized, the very real need for them to be able to tell their own stories authentically, truthfully, and to have the space and opportunity to do that. That's really the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the work of media justice. So give us a sense of exactly what it is that this a fantastic organization is all about. What is the work that you're doing? Absolutely. So at Media Justice, we're dedicated to building a grassroots movement for a more just and participatory media. And our mandate very much is that we're fighting for a world where everyone can be connected, represented, and free. And so we do this in a variety of different ways. For example, our advocacy and campaign work is where we connect communities on the grassroots level to build power and organize around media and tech issues. We do this around uh, shifting the narrative around how communities of color interact and intersect with this media and technology landscape. And then we also are the host of the Media Justice Network, which is a network of about 70 organizations from social justice to art to media who partner alongside us in this fight for gender, racial, and economic justice in a digital age. So the current landscape of media and technology is very much evolving and is a lot of our issues from internet rights to surveillance have very much been exacerbated by the pandemic. And so we're seeing everything from black activists being censored on social media we're seeing our communities struggling to get access to internet in order to fully participate in society. And we're also seeing big tech companies working alongside governments, police agencies, and ICE in order to strengthen their ability to incarcerate and deport our people. And so while we're up against a lot, we are very assured in the fact that our communities hold these solutions and when we come together, we organize and we win. Well, we definitely want to hear more about uh, those campaigns that you're really organizing around, particularly access to uh, affordable internet, to have an open internet, but also that issue around digital security, but surveillance and how social media has been used in that regard as well. But this idea of marginalized communities being able to tell their own stories, of course, social media has been a game changer in this. And two years ago, two summers ago, when we saw what was happening in response to the murder of George Floyd, and of course, so many other murders at the hands of police, 
we have seen social media playing a crucial role in that because that has been able to, to get the truth out there when the authorities have tried to suppress and distort the truth. So talk us through right now, what is the capacity for communities to actually tell their own stories and, and what are some of the barriers to that? Yeah, absolutely. So very much as a part of my role at Narrative, at Media Justice, as our Narrative Director, I'm constantly thinking about the ways that we need to shift the culture around whose stories get told, who's able to distribute and disseminate their stories. And so I often come back to a quote that says, art is not a mirror to reflect reality, but a hammer with which to shape it. And so when our communities are able to not only tell their stories, but distribute them on our own terms, right? We're able to educate one another on our lived experiences, unearth commonalities around the different issues that folks are organizing within their communities around. And then most importantly, put forth a vision for what is the world that we are trying to create and what is that vision for freedom and liberation. And so, when it comes to social media in particular, it can very much be seen as this double-edged sword. And so um, it's been a very transformative place where um, marginalized communities have been able to connect with one another in order to organize around injustices like police killings. It's also been um, really transformative in giving communities the ability to broadcast what's going on in our communities since we know traditional media platforms one are either ignoring stories from marginalized communities or telling them in a way that is very racist and is, is seeking to perpetuate and maintain white supremacy so um, on the one hand it's been really great in that we no longer need to wait or convince folks in power to hear our stories but on the other hand, right, we're noticing and seeing that the, our experiences on these platforms, unfortunately, are very marred by harm and violence. So we know disinformation is rampant on these platforms. Um, there's tons of different hate speech that folks are seeing. Folks who are using social media to speak out against injustice um, are experiencing censorship at a much higher rate than white supremacists, on the other hand, who often are using these platforms to publish their intentions around the offline violence that they intend to enact, are in Facebook groups, for example, coming together and organizing a date and a time to enact something, as well as, unfortunately, we're also seeing folks using platforms like Facebook Live to actually broadcast in real time the violence that they're enacting against Black people and communities of color. And so one of our issue areas that we're working around is big tech accountability. And so you'll hear kind of the same narrative from, from Facebook to Twitter to Amazon, that they're really asserting that their platforms are neutral. And they're doing this to absolve themselves of the violence and the harm and the accountability that they need to be held to for all of the wide reaching impacts that are happening on their platform. So big tech is another area in our society where we are dealing with a monopoly. And so um, things like government regulation to break these down, to have more steps in place so that their reach isn't as far reaching. But it also makes me think to my earlier point about 
storytelling being an opportunity to put forth a vision, we're also thinking about what does it look like when marginalized communities have the resources we need to create our own platforms that are free from surveillance, where we can continue coming together and having conversations from everything to police abolition to Beyonce's new single, um, the, the internet and social media is so multifaceted and so really interested in thinking through what it looks like to create our own space where folks are safe um, to be able to express what they want to. So much to dig in there and such incredible, you know, opportunities, as you said, for communities that have been traditionally marginalized in society and really excluded, not just ignored, but excluded from mainstream media, have found these spaces online to tell their own stories. But as you described there as well, these are also spaces where misinformation is rampant, disinformation, but also hate speech. So if we look at, say, the tech corporations that, that control all of these, particularly the main platforms. Do you see them recognizing the problem around hate speech, the fact that communities of color are particularly targeted by this in a way that we're not even seeing white supremacists being targeted? What are you seeing in terms of the reaction from these tech corporations that have ultimate control over these platforms? Mm -hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, the response hasn't been to the caliber that it needs to be. So them taking urgent action, since we know a lot of the hate speech and the disinformation has a direct link to what's going on in real life spaces. Um, so media justice over the years has had the, the opportunity to be in spaces and direct conversation um with boards of these platforms with folks that are that have the decision making power to be able to make a difference um and unfortunately it's, it's a lot of just placating evading they're often looking for um very band-aid solutions or something that they can share very visibly to posture that they are doing the work but ultimately our demands continue to be the same and so um it's tricky. It's going to be tricky to be able to get them to, to do the broad strokes that we need them to do in order for our folks to be safer on those platforms. You know, this was very much in the news recently with the horrific mass shooting in Buffalo, the black community deliberately targeted by the white supremacists who had organized online, had reached out to other white supremacists, but then also there was a live streaming as well. And so we're seeing these platforms really being used to the, just an awful effect. Um, has When we see something like that happen, is there any movement then in the aftermath to really tackle this? I mean, is there anything, either policy that's coming forward or people in positions of power raising this that is giving you hope that maybe things might change at this juncture? Yeah, and ultimately, since we partner along grassroots communities. Um, I, I feel assured by the ways that I've seen everyday people rise up and say, this needs to, this needs to be the end of this. Um, this is yet another example and a long example of instances where folks have used social media to enact this violence. It almost feels very formulaic at this point. And so um, I do believe everyday people coming together and putting pressure on Congress people, on um, specifically these, these tech platforms 
in particular, um, we'll see a lot of, of movement there. And so I, I very much am, I have hope in that this, um, the narrative again, going back to culture shifting and how I feel like that's one of the most impactful places where policy will then kind of catch up to, to cultural um, sentiments. So I, I feel I my hope remains with folks on the ground and people saying, hey, this is not okay. Um, and so we'll, we'll just have to keep it up and keep up the momentum because both big tech and our governments, they often partner together to kind of quell um, movements. And it's, it's really great to see folks that are still advocating for safer online spaces and advocating for these big tech companies to be broken up um, because it's one too many times this has happened and so folks are really putting their foot down and so i think that cultural shift is really really incredible and then you know the hope is the policy and the legislative solutions will then follow next I want to touch on something you just said there that really resonated with me and I'm sure with so many other viewers that our government is often working in tandem or partnering with big tech on some of these issues. And we have seen this when it comes to surveillance. And, and this is part of uh, one of your campaigns, one of the big issues that Media Justice is working on, digital security and surveillance. We've been talking a little bit there about digital security. But the flip side is that there are uh, groups that are being surveilled online but they're not necessarily the ones that need to, the violent white supremacists. In fact, we're seeing so many communities of color and activists of color being targeted by digital surveillance. Talk a little bit about that and the campaign that Media Justice has right now around this issue. Yeah, absolutely. So similar to what I was sharing before, that tech is not neutral, surveillance is not neutral, right? Like this as an activity is a, a pillar of white supremacy. So. There's no such thing as all equal surveillance. And so whenever we do have surveillance apparatus, um, it's to um, seek out the movements of Black people, Indigenous folks, communities of color, um, since we are often the ones who are demanding justice and demanding shifts against the status quo, which is a direct threat to white supremacy and capitalism. And so, um, one of the major targets within our surveillance campaign work is Amazon. And so Amazon has a very long list of grievances from um, union busting to their climate footprint. And so in particular, media justice's advocacy angle around um, Amazon is that they are quite literally using their technology to power state violence increase the police state and surveillance. So they're not only surveilling workers in their factories, they're also within these partnerships they have with governments, police agencies, ICE, are essentially lending their surveillance apparatus to these um, different agencies in order for them to be essentially more efficient at being able to incarcerate and uh, deport our folks. And so their business model incentivizes an increase in surveillance in our communities. So for example, I'm sure folks might be familiar with the Amazon ring doorbells, um, but there are places around the country where uh, local police agencies can have access to the footage that is on those doorbells. 
and they don't need to consult whoever whoever the owner is of that. And so if you imagine, right, um, the folks that are interacting with people's front doors are often working class, black communities of color. And so you're now put in a situation where there's that increased surveillance, which is just opening up opportunities for our folks to experience harm and violence at the hands of police. And so um, again, Amazon is another company that's going to, that has amazing PR and doesn't want, it wants to distract from the real harm that they are causing, not only in the US, but around the world as a result of their partnerships with military agencies as well, um, which is why, again, kind of going back to the educational and the cultural component, of getting folks to understand that, you know, having access to two-day two shipping, um, it pales in comparison to making sure our folks are safe. Um, and so we wanna encourage folks to, to really understand and grapple with the many ways that Amazon's technology is fueling a lot of the violence that um, was front and center during the 2020 uprisings. And so, for folks who were radicalized during that moment, I think taking a look and plugging into our Amazon work is very much an extension of that since surveillance and technology is fueling police violence against black people. And that's just one area of violence that Amazon is, um, is accountable. Well, I know people can find out more about this particular campaign and all of your work at your website, mediajustice.org. But we would love to hear from our viewers. You can drop us a comment. Let us know your thoughts on all of these issues. Of course, social media, the internet, it's all become so ubiquitous. But as we are hearing from uh, folks at Media Justice, there is very much a dark side to all of this. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment. And don't forget that Just Solutions is also a podcast so you can listen anytime don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts well to further explore you know that amazon campaign that media justice has as well i mean what what are some of the um surveillance online around there's so much data that is being collected amazon is a massive aggregator of data for every single person. I mean, is that a concern as well? In addition to, you mentioned there that uh, the, the doorbell, the, the video, the ring that um, many, many people have that is marketed as this is an incredibly uh, convenient thing. You can see who rings your doorbell. It's a security thing. But as we're hearing with these partnerships with law enforcement, this is being uh, used against particularly communities of color and poor communities. But what, what are some of the other ways that our data is being used uh, in terms of surveillance and particularly how communities of color are being targeted in this way? Yeah, so data privacy absolutely goes hand in hand with all of the topics we've been discussing today. And so um, in general, I want folks to consider that we all should have the right to privacy. And so with surveillance, um, that's, that's no longer the case. So uh, tech companies have access to everything from what you download, the types of websites that you go on. Um, and we know that they use this information um, for monetary value. So again, a lot of Surveillance is big business and it's making a lot of folks a lot of money. And so because of the advertising structure within a lot of social media platforms, um, they are able to get access to essentially everything that you're looking at. 
Um, and so they can then kind of feed that back to you, which is why we see things like algorithms, right? Um, we can take YouTube as an example, right? If someone is watching a video around a mass shooting, you're then given an algorithm that's gonna continue to, to give you those types of videos. And we see that as one of the reasons or a contributing reason to the radicalization that then leads to violence against communities of color. Um, because of the wide reach of what folks can see around our online activity, this also, again, um, makes it difficult for Black activists, Indigenous folks, other communities of color to be able to use the internet as an organizing tool since we are very aware that the conversations that we're having, that the videos, the writing that we're producing, um, that big tech, as a result of us agreeing to be on the platform, there's tons of other um, hidden agreements that we, without our consent, are on the, on the hook for. And so um, that's one of the reasons why we are always thinking about ways that we can encourage our folks to, to practice digital security, whether that's um, having conversations on more encrypted platforms, just being mindful of um, you know, your digital footprint in general. So are there conversations that might be better to be had in person? Um, but it's, it's definitely, again, like I was mentioning, this double-edged sword of everything, essentially everything that we're doing online is being watched. And because these platforms are in direct communication with police agencies, with governments, it, it's there's a high risk um, in terms of the consequences that folks may experience as a result of what you are sharing online. And there's, con there's a, tons of examples of Black activists either simply tweeting hashtag Black Lives Matter or sharing their story of a time where they might have been harmed by a police officer. Um, and then that information is given to a government agency. And then now the government is reaching out to you, making demands of your time um, and wanting to get more information about what you're up to. Since ultimately organizing for freedom is something that is inherently criminalized. And so even someone saying simply, hey, I want a world where everyone can be connected, represented and free is grounds for someone to step in um, and enact some sort of consequence that can be incredibly life-changing. Underscoring all of this is the absolute obscene level of profits that are being reaped from all of this activity online. I mean, we talked about surveillance that's happening, but so much of that data aggregation, is, as you mentioned there, it's, it's about monetizing that. It's about being able to market to us. And, and we're seeing, you know, if we get back to what we talked about, you know, at the start of the show around the need for marginalized communities to take back the narrative and tell their own stories, because we're also now seeing in these digital spaces, the commodification of these stories as well. We've just had the Juneteenth holiday and we've seen so many corporations jumping on this bandwagon on their social media platforms, putting out Juneteenth messages with a view to monetizing that. Talk a little bit about that because I want to talk about this series that you have produced, uh, That's So Black, that really celebrates the influence and the power 
of black culture on the internet and the the influence of that because you know the flip side of this is it's being commodified so talk a little bit about that how these stories of communities of color are being commodified uh, very much in these digital spaces yeah absolutely um and yeah this feels like a very timely question because so juneteenth um, only last year became a federal holiday. And so to see how quickly the commercialization, um, the, the very intentional removal of the actual history behind this holiday. And so we're going from, you know, a holiday that, um, that is celebrating black folks in Texas being notified of their freedom and now it's being flattened to different ice cream flavors and social media posts and folks um, changing, you know, their their obbies to make it seem like they really care about Juneteenth. So um, it, it's a tale as old as time. Corporations, mainstream media outlets uh, have a concerted effort in flattening and honestly just stripping away the roots of black history, which in and of itself is very violent. Uh, it's really unfortunate how quickly we've seen this happen, but this is something folks, something that corporations intentionally do in order to kind of quell movement around this. Um, because if we had uh, a mass movement of folks having a, a genuine understanding of Juneteenth, then we, we would have more folks um, advocating for reparations and advocating for other policies and structures that would help Black folks in this country. And so instead, it's being flattened to, to something very trendy. Um, and this is why, going back to what we've been talking about throughout, that we absolutely should still continue to organize against corporations, against mainstream media, but this is very much why I wholeheartedly believe that what does it look like to have a media landscape where Black people are able to tell our stories and for us. So we can use these platforms to educate, but what does it look like to use it to find commonalities, um, to come together and organize? What does it look like when our media platforms are for Black people and by Black people? Um, without the constant white gaze or corporations kind of over our shoulders. Well, in the last couple of minutes that we have, then describe the, then the impetus behind the That's So Black series with Free, Free Speech TV is delighted to be able to present this at freespeech.org, of course, at mediajustice.org and on the Free Speech TV YouTube channel. It's this wonderful series of short films. Tell us exactly what the impetus behind it is and, and the message that you're trying to convey. Yes, absolutely. So one, I just want to first start off by shouting out my colleague, Ophelia Overton. Um, she pitched this idea and was the producer for this video series. And so the idea around That So Black is one, just a, a celebration and an acknowledgement that Black culture is internet culture and very much has shaped what we know of internet culture and pop culture today. And so this started off as a very fun, uh, project, as well as an informative project to, to let folks know about media and tech issues, but in a very accessible way, which is why when you watch the series, there's tons of different pop culture references. Um, and so we believe like this project is the type of culture shifting narrative work that, that we're leading at Media Justice. And so if folks are able to make connections between how 
TikTok dances are being started by black young people, but then white influencers are the ones that get to go on the late night TV shows and get the Netflix deals. Um, I feel like we're that much more better positioned to have more folks who are on board plugging into our work. And so you can honestly think of it as both a love language to all the ways that black people have throughout history, throughout the inception of the internet have used the internet as a space to connect with one another, to share our histories, our legacies. This has been a really great tool for connection, particularly for black folks who are queer, disabled, undocumented. Um, it's been a really transformative tool for that connection. Um, but we also want to lift up with this series, the tensions that we have to contend with. So the, the capitalistic corporation extraction, surveillance, um, appropriation. And so definitely a fun way to make sure we are lifting up the ways black people have um, made the internet what it is today, as well as galvanize and interest folks in getting to know more about media justice and plugging into our work. Well, we would love for people to join us for a virtual screening of the That's So Black series, followed by a discussion featuring folks from Media Justice. It's happening on June 28th, 7 p.m. Eastern on Free Speech TV's social media platforms, uh, Facebook and also YouTube. And uh, find out more at Free Speech TV's website and our Facebook page as well. In the meantime, Ateng, thank you so much for being our guest today on Just Solutions. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Um, and the reception around That's So Black has been absolutely incredible. So really excited to be partnering with you all on the screening next week. You can find out more freespeech.org. It's where you can also see the That's So Black series. And don't forget, join us same time, same place for another conversation next week from Free Speech TV's Just Solutions. Oh my gosh, you were so good. Thank, Thank you so much. You. We did, you, you did wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was really